0: Dr. Michael Gervais is a high-performance psychologist working in the trenches of high-stakes environments. He's also the co-founder of Compete to Create, a joint venture with Seattle Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll, which focuses on mindset training for individuals in the workplace. Their clients include Microsoft and AT&T. You might also recognize Michael from his world-class podcast, Finding Mastery, where he curates conversations with extraordinary performers from across sports, business, and academia. People like Steve Kerr, Abby Wombach, Georges St. Pierre, Satya Nadella, and Brene Brown. I had Michael lined up to appear on season one of the show, but scheduling got in our way, so I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome him to the show for season two. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Michael Gervais, welcome to Where Others Won't. Thank you for having me on. I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball straight out of the gate. I'm going to go deep. But I heard this question the other day. One of my former guests asked it as the intro. So I'm going to use it on you. What makes your heart sing?
1: Did you say sing or sink? <laughs> because that's a very different response.
0: <laughs> Let's go with sing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wait, we'll
0: start sing? with sing, and then if we need to go into oh, sync we can go there too.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. So sing. What makes it sing? You know what? I'm a, like I love people, and I love being part of the unlocking of like the realization, the unlock, the demystification, the expression, the creative expression, if you will. And my heart sings when I'm able to see people get lost in the thing that they're loving doing. And so, you know, not to play too much on a metaphor, but that's where we find who we are. And so I'll give you a a small example is um, I could give you loads of it, but I feel most animated with the spirit when I'm in the presence of somebody exploring and loving what they're doing. So it was just yesterday. I was in the uh, driving. My son was in the back. He's 11 years old. And um, it it just sounded like a little bird was back there singing. He had no idea. And his musicality was just flowing. And he's not trained. I'm not saying anything about like high skill, but there was just this, you know, freedom that was coming from the back seat. And I was like, you know, God, that's, that's what it's about there. So that's one place that happens. The other place is like when you're doing the hard work. When I'm with somebody that's doing the hard work on trying to figure out, you know, what is possible for them. They've got this scratchy idea of what they can do. They've had glimpses of potential. They're working their ass off to figure out, like, how to do that on a regular basis and then how to free themselves in the opportunities when that thing they care about is is. Um, is available, whether it's sports or music or whatever. And then seeing them trust themselves and snap into the present moment, string the present moments together with all the skills that they've been working on, mental, physical, technical skills, and then like, let it happen, you know, being an active participant. And, you know, I get animated there. And the the the, the other place when my heart sings is when I'm in a conversation with somebody that, um, uh, that I love and that is, true and it's honest and it can be hard and it's beautiful like i feel alive in those scenarios so those are three with people and then the fourth is when um i lose my self-referencing way about myself checking in to see if i'm okay the default mode network i'd like to talk to you about that that's part of our brain's network you know that self-referencing am i okay and when i can do something that i am able to quiet that down whether it's being in the ocean you know with my first sports or it's uh, mindfulness training or it's deep engagement and embodiment with the thing that I'm doing and that happens to be you know performance and sports psychology is the, the craft when I'm able to be completely absorbed my heart doesn't sing but my whole being becomes like animated with the spirit of being alive. And so it feels bigger than just the heart scene. But so anyways, that's, I've never heard the question. It's a cool question. And, um, that's, that's initially where I go. Those four verticals.
0: Well, you can't see me, but you know, I've been sitting here with a a big smile on my face, just listening to you talk about that. So even your response, you know, you can tell it's funny, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of the elements that that you're talking about in other people as well. And whether that's through coaching or, you know, leadership in general, or, uh, you know, children like you said and once you've seen that that joy that just raw joy and it's just encapsulating and it's it's hard to forget so i i agree with you and i love your response and we're going to touch on a, a whole range of things throughout this conversation but you know i want to talk about your origin story because you know you talk about your life is all around elite performance and um you know within psychology but specifically within you know you call it like high stakes environments so what drew you to that in particular? because psychology in general, you, you could have kind of specialized anywhere, but why at the the high stakes level? Yeah,
1: you know, I love that question. And I don't know. let me let me just start at the beginning. this is the origin story. I was gonna like try to shrink it down a little bit, but let me not edit you know the story here for you. is that when I was fifteen, and the thing that I loved to do most was surfing, and there's two types of surfing. Um, I grew up in the uh, sunny southern California, and the coastline's beautiful. And you know, there's a good surf here, and it's a strong community. And there's two basic types of surfing, and there's free surfing and competitive surfing. And free surfing is—it's got a very strong ethos, which is put yourself in the most critical position on a wave, find the heaviest wave you can, and don't ever talk about it because it is about being in that situation that experience and the knowing of what it takes to be in it and there's no cameras there's no storytelling it's just hardcore if you will and then the other part of surfing is competitive surfing Mm -hmm. where it's like you know okay you're being scored and judged and packed beaches and whatever and those two worlds don't play well and i got caught in between those two worlds and not not organically like I loved the hardcore nature, the free surfing aspect of it, but I also have a competitive spirit. And what ended up happening for me is, uh, so I had this kind of weird vibe about, no, you shouldn't go compete, dude, be core. But then I go over to the the dark side, if you will, the competitive side. (laughs) And I, I couldn't do it. I lost my way. And as soon as the, the horn goes off on the beach and my heat was starting, I couldn't, I was not in touch at all with my body. It felt like I didn't even know what to do if I were to catch a wave and what it, ha- I didn't lose my physical, my physical skills or my technical skills. They didn't just evaporate, you know, on that day. But what happened is I started thinking about consequences, about what could go wrong, about what people would think, about what, you know, whether they're on the beach or the, my, my guys from the more hardcore um, approach to surfing. And so I was caught up in what others would think. And sure mm-hmm. enough, it constricted me in such a way that it choked off the access that I had to get free to do my thing. And it was awful, right? Because yeah. I, I have this competitive yeah. chip, you know, kind of way about me. And then, but I couldn't figure it out. So organically, I earned those scars of knowing what it's like. And I kept trying, you know, and it, it didn't quite work out until one day. I was in a competition, um, a gentleman paddled by me who I've been competing with a bunch and he knew what I could do free surfing and he paddled by me and he said, hey, Gervais, you gotta stop thinking about what could go wrong. <laughs> I'm sitting on the board, it's just him and two other people you know, in the competition. I was like, how the hell did he know that? And just like a good competitor, he paddled off. He left me with that bomb, <laughs> right? So he paddles off but I was like, you know what? He's right. That- That's all I'm doing. I'm just focusing on everything that could happen, that might happen, that could be catastrophic. And it set me down this path as this young 15-year-old to say, well, what if I didn't think about that? What would I think about? And I didn't even know there was a field of sports psychology, but I did know that from that moment on that the way I thought about things mattered. And so it wasn't just about physical training and technical training alone, which that's what I spent most of my time doing. I now needed to wake up, or you know, just animate it in so many ways. Like the the way that the mind works, I had to figure it out, and so eventually, it started me down that path to be curious about it. And it was from scars, you know, that's where it started for me.
0: That's really interesting, and I've spoken to a couple of sports psychologists that are the same. It came about through it's called the capitulation of their own career or their own talent or whatever it was, and. And the reason I resonate with that in particular, the way you described is because it was my story as well. I was a uh, an Aussie rules football player growing up, you know, in the you know top kind of 1% played for, you know, the state of Victoria at under 15 level, 16 level and 18 level. And, and just, you know, it, it all started to go away. I just had this thought my way out of the game essentially and couldn't get into certain games or, you know, I would look at my teammates, the higher levels that I got. And yeah, like you described my, nothing really happened, but my skill just felt like it was melting away and I'd make dumb decisions that I wouldn't normally make. And I was intimidated by guys that I thought were better than me. And it's really interesting. That's what made me gravitate towards coaching because I realized that I was actually coaching myself. Like I would run to positions on the field. Like Aussie rules is very dynamic. I would run to positions on the field that I would want the player to be in to receive the ball and it would never come. But I was essentially coaching myself and that's why I ended up in coaching was because it was like the ball should come here. It didn't, but it should come here if, if I was coaching. Yeah, it, it made me fall out of love with the sport and then it came back through coaching. And, uh, and that's been my journey ever since, you know, 12, I'm 35 now. I've been coaching for 12 years already. So, yeah, I really resonate with, with that response. Let's talk about your podcast a little bit because, you know, finding mastery is, it seems like a, a you know, a part of the, the journey for you to, you know, uncover all these different people, performers from around the world, not just within sports, but from all sorts of different disciplines. Yeah, what, what was the catalyst for that? Like what made you want to go and interview these people and, uh, and learn about their own journeys to finding mastery?
1: Yeah, I... It started organically, and it started from a place which was, you know, I really need to better understand, um, is there a unifying thread? You know, is there a single thread that that binds people that are masterful at craft or masterful at self? And, you know, I, I spent so much time in the amphitheater of high stakes and consequence and rugged environments. And... There is a thread, but it's like I wasn't able to figure it out. I couldn't see it. And so what I wanted to do was like say, okay, well, let's just go. If I was to fire up a research project, what would it be about these unicorns? Well, it would be asking them hard questions and seeing if, they, if I could at least understand their psychological framework. And then from that, maybe what we'll be able to do is see if there is a unifying thread. Right. And we're not there yet. You know, I'm only 200, 200 conversations in. And we're going to push this stuff through uh, some deep learning and some um, uh, natural language processing to make sense of it. And we're doing that right now. It's really exciting. Coach Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, we he and I together are co-founders of the Performance Science Institute at USC, the University of Southern California. And so we're really excited. They're taking our intellectual properties and making sense of them, making them better, making them sense, giving a competitive advantage to the uh, the athletes and the business and the the students in the business school at Wonderful. USc and then we're going to open that up um, as quickly as we can to to other folks you know to learn from what are the themes, what are the streams, what are the insights from folks that are masterful? So where it started mm-hmm. was like, is there a common thread and I'm learning now that we're getting close to a couple common threads, and um, it's going to inform hopefully the the next generation
0: is the idea, hopefully. And for the one person that hasn't listened to Finding Mastery.
1: Who is that? I want to know who that is. Yeah. Uh,
0: Send us an email. Um, I'm going to forward it on to to you guys. Um, Who are some of the performers? Like who are the the high stakes? You know, we haven't really explained that. When we're talking high stakes performers from different disciplines, who are some of the people that you've spoken to on your show?
1: Oh, yeah. Cool. I mean, it ranges. Um, I've spent, so let me do a caveat first, is that, Coming out of graduate school, uh, licensed as a psychologist, specialization in sport and performance with a subspecialty in, in high-stakes environments. What the heck does that mean? Is that that I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with one particular group of people that informed and shaped my understanding of potential. And it was through the Red Bull High Performance Program that I was fortunate enough to be part of extraordinary men and women who were pushing the boundaries of human performance and being in the amphitheater with them in some of those situations, like the Red Bull Stratos program, mm-hmm. which was Felix Baumgartner jumped from out of space, you know, at the edge of space at 128,000 feet. And, you know, it was amazing, amazing experience for all of us involved. And it reshapes the narrative of what is possible. And it helps us reimagine what the rest of us can do. And so those are the amphitheaters that I was fortunate enough to like roll my sleeves and get, be in. But then on the podcast, there's similar folks, you know, there's like Alex Hanold, which I think many people are familiar with. Um, Alex, uh, is a free, a solo free climber who without any ropes, any assistance climbed 3000 feet, you know, sheer granite rock, uh, in Yosemite, which was amazing. Uh, it, thing, it was just so captivating. So folks like that, folks like um the great karch karai (laughs) who was one of the most winningest volleyball players and coaches ever in beach and indoor Uh, we've got multiple olympians that have done extraordinary things in that place we're able to have um uh, handfuls of special operators that are uh, from a variety of different countries and disciplines that are now we're talking about the highest stakes war Mm-hmm. Uh, plenty of big wave surfers like Ian Walsh and, um, Kai Lenny I Guess the list goes on there, which are amazing folks. We, we've been able to have a, a woman who is a, a explorer of wisdom. And so she travels from tribe to tribe. These, this is not high stakes, but it's incredible tip of the arrow type of understanding of what happens. So she travels from tribe to tribe and she distills the wisdom of the elders and she's an actual, um, she is capable of traveling from just the stars and the navigation from wow. um, from Mother Nature. So it's like an incredible, you know, so it's those types of folks. Um, and I, the list goes on and on, but uh, I'm just geeked to be uh, able to learn from those folks and what they're doing. And just most recently, um, DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love, uh, two yeah. NBA legends, are, uh I sat down with them to talk about mental health. And their struggle on it, and how that is impacting their performance and their well-being. I could go on and on, but I won't.
0: <laughs> That's a must-listen to episode as well with with Demar and Kevin. Obviously, you know I'm sitting here in Toronto, so you know uh, an absolute legend in this city, and yeah. um, and has done a lot for for that cause as well. And I can tell you from you know the ones that I have actually downloaded onto my phone is uh, is with coach Walton and, uh, oh, and also, did you
1: like that? Wasn't he, isn't he great? He's, How about Steve Kerr? How about coach? I
0: was about to say, and coach Kerr as well. I yeah. listened to that one this, uh, this morning before coming on the show. Here. Oh, did and, you? Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, that was great. And then let's not forget the one with coach Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Oh, you know, and, folks that aren't, and, and folks that are not involved in sport, like the, I, I'm not, this is not, they're not sport questions. There's not one question about X's and O's and tactics. It's about, you know, the strategies to help people flourish and, and not all of the conversations are with athletes. You know, there's scientists and researchers
0: and um,
1: artists that are littered throughout um, the exploration on the podcast as well.
0: Yeah. And that's what I really like about it. And why I think it, it it's, it's really found its way is because it's, yeah, it's not a sports show. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, you don't ask the same questions. And like you said, there's no X's and O's and, you know it it, uh, it covers a whole range of different topics and you know influences on those people and and people really you know open up to you which i i love and on that actually with high performers in particular everyone wants to know what that thread is like what is that one thing where my mind goes like what are the inconsistencies so like who who is someone that is just off the wall or just has something bizarre in terms of their unique preparation to perform that has kind of wowed you, whether you've spoken to them on the, on the show or, you know, worked with them or just been exposed to them. Someone where you're like, this is so crazy and bizarre, but it works.
1: You know, I wish that I could, um, by trade and training, I am a sports psychologist, which means that, you know, there's a, that patient client thing that happens. And I wish that I could, highlight the genius of some of the folks I've worked with. So unfortunately I'm not able to, I, I can't talk about that, but I, I, there is one in particular that was on the podcast and it's uh, John Donovan. So John Donovan is the CEO of AT&T communications and he manages like 200,000 people, maybe even three, no wait. Two hundred three. 280,000 humans roll up to him. It's an am- astonishing number. And so one of the things that he is absolute harbinger is that he spends four hours every morning investing in his inner life. And so he's got a mindfulness slash prayer practice. He's got a writing practice. He reads some stuff. He does some light movement and four hours. And so the way that he started this was at 10 minutes And he realized after 10 minutes a morning of some sort of prayer mindfulness work that he does, he's like, you know what? I feel feel better. I feel more kind of connected. I wonder if I went to 20. Yeah. And then he just kept growing, growing, growing. And if I shorthand his insight, it's that it's something about like for every minute I invest internally, I'm exponentially better in everything I do externally. And so that external piece is – you know, our engagement with others, our engagement with mother nature, our engagement with our craft, you know, so it's really a cool insight different yeah. than anyone else.
0: Yep. I want to talk about, uh, compete to create, uh, which is your you know consulting business with coach Carol. And, and, you know, this show in general kind of sits in between sport and business and, and likes to play them off against each other and, and, you know, merge ideas and things like that. So, you know, just the, the general idea in terms of even the name, you know, it comes from that Coach Carroll always talks about competition and, and driving competitions. He loves to compete and that, you know, it shows up in everything that the Seattle Seahawks do. So, you know, what was kind of the catalyst of taking that idea and stripping it out and saying, you know, we're going to turn this into something that the business world can learn from and, and others can learn from?
1: So the we're it was a couple months before our first Super Bowl, and we're in the hallway at the training center, and he comes flying out of his office, and he's like Mike, he's just like super like engaged with this thought that he had. He goes, "Can you feel it?" I was like, "Yeah," <laughs> and so he's talking about having you know sixty three alpha competitors and twenty two alpha coaches pointing their noses in the same direction. It's rare and it was it was palpable it was an amazing thing that was taking place and this is a couple months before the super bowl mm-hmm. and and so what he was talking about is oh no i'm sorry then he asked a question and the question was do you think anyone outside of sport would be interested in what we're doing and the way that i understood that is that his genius is about how to create an ecosystem where people can do their best work now that applies in sport and business right and then my stuff on inside of that was like the actual mechanical training of the mind, the deepening and strengthening the psychological frameworks for people to amplify their potential. And so like one plus one equals something far greater than two. And he says, do you think anyone would be interested in this outside of sport? And I just kind of stood there like, "Uh," and he goes, let's just write it down. (laughs) And so it was a back of a napkin type of experience. We wrote down all the stuff he's been doing for 60 years of stuff I've been doing for 20 years, the stuff we did together, kind of figured that thing out, put it on a back of a napkin, translated that to a, a document. And then one of the wonderful things about, you know, his position in the world of sport is he calls up the CEO of Microsoft <laughs> and of the CEO of Microsoft. Right. It was <laughs> a couple weeks into um, his job, Satya Nadella, who I think, is one of the most significant CEOs of our time because his deep commitment to helping people flourish and his commitment to empathy and his commitment to help people do their best work. And so there's a great synergy. And, um, and he was doing it at scale with 180,000 humans in his organization. And he says, um, we had, so I have this great conversation and he's like, yes, let's see if we can do something together. So we start with a small incubation of 12 people and we a full day training and we do we work with 12 people and that turns into uh, 25 people and that turns into 2,500 and before you know it, we're at plus 40,000 humans investing eight hours of their day at Microsoft, paid for by Microsoft, sponsored by Microsoft, if you will, and somewhere in the middle of that, that uh, doubling, if you will, Microsoft helped us build an online course. So we have an in-person experience, eight hours. I mean, it is like drinking through a fire hose. And we make it as simple as we can and a very practical of ways that you can train your mind. Mm-hmm. And then and then they helped us build uh, an eight-week online course as well that we're just opening up to the public, which is super exciting for us. And so that's kind of how that started. And then the way the name started was, we struggled. Like, like, it doesn't sound like a company name, does it? Right? We struggled. Like, like we're on the whiteboard. Like, how about this? And how about that? And like, he's looking at me like, dude, that's too surfer. And I'm looking at him like, no, that's that's not cool enough. And so we're going back and forth trying to figure it out. And then like, there was this moment of silence. And I, I think I can't remember exactly how it happened, but it's like, okay, what's your most important one word? And he goes, compete. And so he says to me, Mike, what's your, what's your most important word? I said, create. And so his, his philosophy is always compete and competition doesn't mean stepping over somebody and celebrating that they're lying on their back. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, that's not the spirit of competition. The spirit of competition is to see how far we can help each other take, you know, our skills and practices to you know, our potential. And so it's compete to be your greatest coach, to compete to be greatest dad, father, friend, fill in the blanks. And then mine comes from my philosophy, which is every day is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece. So, the, so there it is. Compete, work your ass off now in in harmony with people to create a living masterpiece. So there you are, compete to create, no <laughs> branding exercise, whatever support, what I just talked about, right? But it's so <laughs> organic to us that. We laugh about it, and we love it.
0: It's definitely not an agency name that's for sure there was there no. was
1: <laughs> something way cooler that's nope. like one name you know like <laughs> I don't know brick or something or <laughs> bluefish you know like. Something way cooler.
0: No kidding. I, do you know what I spend most of my time and most of my phone data on Amazon, just scrolling. Like when I come up with an idea for a book name and it's like, has this already been done? And you know, uh, and on GoDaddy as well, I was like, has this URL taken? So I've, I've been there.
1: Yeah. You, you know, yeah. Right. It's Is crazy. this a good
0: name yeah. or a terrible name? <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. Cool. And so, you know, again, as someone who is in a a similar kind of vein and and world and and trying to, you know, take the lessons from the sports world and, and take them into business, you know, something that I come up against is people just turn around to me and say, well, I don't like sports. And, you know, again, that's, that's on me, but what I'm trying to do is to strip out the, the core lessons. So, like, how have you found that process in that? Like, this isn't about sports. You've, you've been practicing, the, you know, the execution of all of these methodologies within the sports world, but then, you know, you've got to then go and sell it to people that might hate sports for all we know. And so how have you found that process? Cause that's what I come up against as a, as a barrier to entry.
1: Yeah, I think sport metaphors are overplayed. And so I'm not, yeah, I'm not that interested in those at all. Where, the place that sport is really interesting to me is that it's a mistake to herald the extraordinary doers because they're on the podium. That's a mistake. The opportunity is to pull back the curtain if we can and figure out from a scientific approach, how do they organize their life? How do they organize their inner life and external world to explore high performance and or potential and or meaning? And so to me, that's mastery of craft and mastery of self. And if we miss any of those things I just talked about, like purpose and meaning and or mastery of self and or mastery of craft, organizing inner world and outer life, then we're falling short. Now... The reason I say that is because it's not simple, it's not clean, and if we're not standing on the shoulders of great scientists, we're just making things up. So for me, um, Science Informed is at the foundation, and there's incredible theory that has already been written and, and deeply researched and understood, and knowing how to snap that into a structure that allows for innovation, and then we go straight to the extraordinaries the most courageous thinkers and doers in the world and say how and it's going to hopefully it's going to inform you know another an upgraded version of the human experience it's not about sport at all it's about how do we organize our inner life and our external world to grow and that is what athletes do better than anyone on the planet the feedback loops that that athletes have is incredible in business we don't have feedback loops how do you know that the conversation you just had was world-class or not. How do you know the email you just sent was in the upper third quartile or upper third percentage uh, points for or lower third when it comes to emails being crafted? We don't have feedback loops, but in sport, there's feedback loops. And I think that's the big takeaway is how do you organize your life for accurate feedback loops based on the, the idea of what you're trying to solve in life? And I'm gonna snap it to one piece of research which is Harvard did a 75 year longitudinal study where they took a look at fulfillment and there's two key findings that I want to, there's five main, but two that I want to talk about right now. And one of those is those that had the highest level of fulfillment in life grokked with the difficult questions in life. Hmm. Who am I? What am I doing here? What is my purpose? Am I doing something that matters? Is there meaning in my life? Where am I going next? (laughs) What am I doing with my family life and my work life? And so those big, difficult questions about humanness is one of the core constructs for uh, fulfillment in life. So um, anyways, organize your inner life, your external life, mastery of craft, mastery of self, and then wrestling with the deep questions about purpose and meaning. That's where I think um, sport becomes a great Petri dish. While we might be missing in the sport world, big questions about life, but we certainly can look at the structures that help with the mini mission, the Sunday mission, the game, the game day mission. And one of the reasons, and I, know, I feel like, geez, I just got on a soapbox, but sorry for this. But one of the reasons that athletes struggle post-career, somewhere north of 87% struggle and I mean, broke, divorce, or possibly both within two years is because they go from high purpose and meaning. And then the knowing that they matter to the mission, the collective mission of the team to none of that. Yeah. So we know just from that simple little stat and the inference that I made that, that if we, if we know as, as humans, our purpose, which is not easy, but if we can get clarity on that and really roll up our sleeves and do that deep, difficult Mm -hmm. work, flourishing is on the other side of it so a matter of fact it's not like once you figure it out then you flourish figuring out is part of the flourishing but asking those difficult hard questions is really important so anyways it's not about sport it's about the humanness of of becoming and being
0: i'm right there with you and uh, that's why i wanted to ask because you know i again, I'm kind of in that same world and and trying to, you know, go to people and say, like, let's not bring the quarterback in for a a motivational talk. Um, You know, let's look at the organizational structures of, of how the best teams are built. You know, how does sustained success work from a team perspective? You know, and that doesn't mean, you know, we tend to always look at, and this is where I'm starting to research now, we always look at the winners, but there are so many organizations out there that have their own version of success that they're just repeating over and over again. You know, we we always go to the Patriots and the Spurs, but you know, what about the the, the Seahawks and the Seahawks (laughs) (laughs) and the the Seahawks, but yeah, yeah. What, what about, you know, yeah. Why don't we go and look at them? What about the Detroit Pistons of the early two thousands, who made you know five straight Eastern Conference championships? What they won once. Um, you know, Burnley in the in the Premier League, they they haven't won anything, but you know they've got a, a tiny ground, a tiny budget, and they're in the top ten. So, like to me, that sustained success. Like, let's look at those things. How how do they recruit? Like, what are the you talk about common threads in in performance? You know, what are the common threads in terms of how these organizations and the teams create sustained success. What are the common threads of the culture? What are the common threads of the leadership? Like what does the common restlessness look like to keep them on edge? Yeah, again, it's not about sports. Sport is just a vehicle and, and uh, yeah, there are so many lessons. You know, again, I, I skew team side, but there are so many lessons just sitting there that have been quality tested over decades that I think we can really latch on to. And so yeah, that's, that's great. And that's, one of those one of those bright lines for sure is clarity. Totally. You know, yeah,
1: clarity of guiding principles and clarity of mission. Yep. And clarity of characteristics that are going to help I'm sorry, characteristics and capabilities that are gonna help with that mission. And so clarity is a really important piece that keeps emerging. Um and you know, it's not easy. And I, I'll just say that there's only there's only three ways I know to get clarity. And maybe you found some other ways, but it's writing is one forcing function. It forces you to choose words and put them together in your native tongue. Mm -hmm. The second is conversations with wise people about things of wisdom. And then the third is mindfulness, listening, really, you know, using that as a way to examine and be with the hard truths of who you are. And so, and then it's also the training for being present more often. And when we're present, we, what that means is that we are connected to or in the presence of the truths. And because the truths are only revealed in the present moment. So those, three, those are the three forcing functions to help get that clarity. And you know what? They're not that exciting. <laughs> maybe, right. you know, maybe the conversations are. But there's very little dopamine hits that we get. There's way more dopamine. By the way, anything that ends with IN or INE, serotonin, dopamine, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, our body loves them, right? And right. so, andamine, you know, from, from whatever. And so, andamine is the root from um, marijuana. And so, like our body loves those things. It doesn't love hard conversations, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but what we do get from from beautiful conversations and connections with people is oxytocin, another I-N, and oxytocin, known as the cuddle chemical, is something that um, is really important that this generation right now is struggling with because there's no oxytocin in digital communication, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah
0: it'd be remiss for me to let you gloss over your mention of mindfulness there. It's obviously a, you spend two minutes on LinkedIn and there's about 10 articles on mindfulness and in the workplace and how to practice it and all that sort of stuff. But as someone who is, is so in this space, what would be your advice to, to anyone listening? And I'm talking like leaders right the way down to someone that just happens to stumble on this podcast where would you go to first? If I'm just a beginner, you know, I I need the ABCs and the one, two, threes of mindfulness. Where would you advise that I start? Because there's a ton of advice and I'm not sure it's the greatest advice. So let's go to the expert.
1: Yeah. Go to the source, you know, go back to, um, some of the ancient tomes and figure that out. That's one way. Um, I'm going to give you three. The second is there's a small community of people that introduced mindfulness to the Western world and go straight to them and so um, I'm, I'm squarely sitting in like the value of John Kabat-Zinn and he's really got it so the ancients like Thich Nhat Hanh is a great place to go to Buddhist mm-hmm. traditions Christianity around contemplative prayer so those are the kind of the ancient structures to take a look at right um, Hinduism is uh, it's got some beautiful traditions on mindfulness the, the challenge when you go to the ancients is that you're left to your own devices to sort out where they are in those beautiful texts and inspired words right. and and so I that's why I'm a fan of like okay go check out Thich Nhat Hanh go check out um, uh, John Cabot zinn and understand how they're thinking about it it's amazing so those are two ways the third way is do the work it's not it's not complicated to understand and i can see my 20 years ago as i was i was introduced to it it's like 22 years now and um if he heard me now talking about it he'd say mike you know like when i'm in a corporate setting or athletic setting and i'm talking about he says mike you're explaining it way too long before you're giving them the chance to practice it and experience it. And so what does that mean? Like sit down and rest and focus your attention. When I say rest, just kind of quiet down for a minute. And I'm oversimplifying a beautiful tradition is just focus on one thing without judgment, without critique, just focus on your inhale, your exhale over and over and over again. And, when your mind wanders, just come right back to it. Notice the distracting thought and as quickly and gently as you can come back to the inhale and exhale. That's called single point mindfulness focus. And it's, you know, one of the basic approaches to mindfulness. That's it. Do the work, you know, and then the other is contemplative meditation, contemplative mindfulness, which is quieting down, you know, like if you will, a couple of breaths to kind of settle into wherever you are and then just watching your thought stream and watching your emotional streams and what thoughts connect to what thoughts and what thoughts and emotions link up and just watching without judgment, without critique, where you go. And that's practicing being present with your thoughts and emotions. Amazing. <laughs> it'll take you somewhere. Not always, not always the most pleasant places. Not it'll always take where
0: you want to go. Yeah. <laughs> it'll take you somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go back to, uh, to the kind of team side for a second with you. And I'm going to steal, it's actually written on your site, but you talk about this idea of integrated psychology within the Seahawks. I know you can't talk specifics, but you know, for a lot of people thinking about, you know, a sports psychologist like yourself, they, they still kind of envision, you know, single room, you know, desk lamp, uh, man in man or woman in a white lab coat. And like, that's the psych, but you know, what does this look like from an organizational perspective, this integrated approach to, to psychology? And then why does it look like that for you?
1: well it's a good question like it's definitely not come sit on the couch and let's talk about you know let's not have a conversation that. that's it's more that happens but that's not the the vibe of it it's more about it's wrapped in the dna of the organization Mm -hmm. there's only three things that you can train we can train as humans we can train our craft we can train our body and we can train our mind and if a world-class performers, whether it's in business, whether it's in the arts or sport, you know, they're not leaving any of those three up to chance. And so, why, why should we? And so, we're, we're definitely not just having it be tucked into the back corner somewhere. Yeah, This is something that is driven by Coach Carroll, who is, you know, the, the curator of what the culture, the vision of the culture is, the vision of the relationships. Culture is a fancy word for the artifact of the relationships that we have with each other. And so it is built in the DNA. The reason it's built in the DNA is because, um, you know, it's that essential. So every day we're talking about it, we're speaking about it. And then there's also places to go, to go deeper into it.
0: Um, Yeah. I've I've had a couple of conversations recently off the air with, with sports psychologists and they're trying to get to that point. And uh, it's just, yeah, I think it's so beneficial where the the whole organization can practice the same things and have the same verbiage. And, and there's, again, it's going to be so individual based on the athlete, based on the coach, based on who's a father, mother, whatever it may be. But um, there's still that, like you said, the common thread between all of it.
1: Yeah. So it's principle based language is how we express and make sense of principles, body language and, or, you know, using words. And then, I don't want to give you the wrong image. So it's DNA based principle based, if you will, talked about a lot, lived often. There's a lot of hallway conversations. There's a lot of stuff happening um, in between practice uh, reps, if you will. And then there are places where we just pull up and have good conversations, whether that's in an office setting or that's in a, a lobby somewhere or it's in the kitchen or whatever, fill in the blank. So it's again, just part of the DNA is where I think we see the most return on investment.
0: I love that. You said the term, the curator of the culture as well. I hope you haven't trademarked that or anything because I'm, I'm definitely going to steal that. It's uh, probably <laughs> the best way I've, <laughs> I've heard it put. So.
1: <laughs> mm, yeah, We are all custodians of culture, but yeah. there's somebody that needs a curator.
0: Yeah. And you know what I, again, just my three second view on this is I think that might be one of those commonalities of sustained success is there's a, you know, part kind of James Kerr's legacy, part the, the curator of culture. You know, we're always trying to, to benefit the, the larger entity you know, over a longer period of time, which is difficult. But um, Yes. As someone that's as curious as you, you know, like outside of your work, in your day-to-day life, what are you curious about researching, learning about at the moment that might be really obscure, like, you know, whatever flat earth, philosophy or the history of pianos or what is what's intellectually stimulating you kind of outside of your, your core work that you do at the moment?
1: One day we're going to see thoughts. We're not there yet. (laughs) All we can see is the artifact of thoughts. And, and that's how we know that they exist. One we know from our, an examination within ourselves, like, Oh, there's this thing there's this narrative, there's these words that string together, you know, I'm calling them thoughts, but they really play out in images and, but those are private and we see the artifact of that, which is blood pressure, posture, micro expressions. fill in the blank. And just looking at the HRV, the artifact, the response to thought is not good enough. And we're asking people right now to examine their thoughts and we're asking them to do something that's very hard because thoughts are invisible. And if you don't have an inventory or can't examine your thoughts without critique and judgment judgment, it's really hard to get good at them. So at some point I think we're going to be able to see them and we're not there yet. The tools aren't there. The instruments aren't there. The question isn't um, important enough, even though thoughts are one of the main drivers for the human experience. Um, We don't have a nucleus or a critical mass of folks saying, well, how could we see them? And so, Um, I throw that out there. If there's someone that wants to go on that journey with me, that has, you know, they're sitting on, I don't know, 400, $500 million to go after it. (laughs) That's probably what it's going to take, you know, maybe more, but, uh, imagine what would happen. Imagine if we could reimagine the human experience, if we could see thought, how, first of all, we get good at them. Mm -hmm. We just get good at the thought world. You know, thoughts lead to, you know trains of thought and we just get we'd have better trains running
0: absolutely yeah so anyways that's that's the, that's I, was, the I was kind of expecting a, a mundane answer but you have oh, you've, so so. you've ruined you've ruined you ruined my dreams for tonight that's for sure I, now i'm going to have some sort of black mirror <laughs> like damn it. Um, yeah, what are we doing here <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah cool uh, last question and it's one of yours what does mastery mean to you i wish i knew I've asked that question
1: so often. That's and what I wanted t- to ask you. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> thank you for asking. I will. I, here's where I am with it right now: is that there's two main chunks, master of craft, mastery of self. There's some stitching between those two that are universal, and there's some unique characteristics about each of those that is that are different from one another. But mastery really is about an arc. It is about a journey. It's not the destination and demonstration of the accomplishment. That's not what it is. Mm -hmm. So if we double click under that and say, okay, great, what does that mean? That mastery really is about a commitment to the spaces between the spaces. So it's the space between where the nuances lie. And inside of those nuances is what separates people that are masterful and people that are world-class and people that are high performers from people that are performers from people that, you know, struggle. And so it's the space between that is where the clues of what mastery is. That's where it lies. The next, ver- the next like vertical that I think about with mastery is like, how do you recognize it? and in you know there's a very colloquial saying that game recognizes game and so somebody who is masterful and is on the path of mastery you see them you see someone else in a very different field discipline and can appreciate how complicated what they just did and made it simple and so it's the It's not a reductionist model, but it is making the complicated simple because they're playing in the spaces between and in those spaces in between, that's where they are watching a different game. They're playing a different game than what we're doing. And that's what mastery is.
0: Fascinating. Mike, where can people find you? Okay,
1: great place, um, is on the interweb, right? (laughs) So, uh, at Michael Gervais is Instagram. And then um, Twitter is the same, at Michael Gervais. And that's spelled G-E-R-V-A-I-S. And the kind of the easiest places to go to are, you know, on Instagram, we also have Finding Mastery. But the easiest places are compet2create.net. And then for the podcast, it's FindingMastery.net. And you can also find it in all the players, you know, iTunes or Google player, whatever the players that people are listening to and then LinkedIn
0: as well. Thank you so much for the conversation. I've uh, been a long time admirer of your work and oh, uh, so uh, kind. Yeah. I hope you, hope you keep doing uh, your show and I uh, hope you keep killing it with, uh, with Coach Carroll and everything you've got going on there. The Seahawks, obviously. Yeah, it's uh, keep doing good work because it's, it's going far and wide and impacting a lot of people. So oh, thank man. you.
1: Cody, that's what's up. And congrats on what you're doing as well. You know, where others won't is a great title and you know, it's, and like you deconstructing and working to understand, um, based on all the podcasts that you've been able to do. And the list is extraordinary, like right on dude. So I'm stoked that, uh, you're following that bead and that passion as well.
0: Thank you, mate. Appreciate you coming on.
1: Okay. Take care. Bye.